I have been part of um, several celebrations and I was thinking of just doing a regular Dharma talk tonight and I thought, no, I, I should probably talk about all this stuff and next week we'll get back to kind of the lists of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Um, I'm now officially older <laughs> and I turned 60 on Saturday. Um, and it's so interesting, you know, as I've talked about, it's uh, um, so peculiar because you sit or, or you look in the mirror um, and you're clearly aging. You know, I am. I look in the mirror, I'm clearly older. And yet some part of me doesn't feel like that has anything to do with me at all. Um, and it's because it doesn't, in a way. The body ages, it's its nature, but the mind exists outside of time. And so the consciousness that sees the changes of life is one dimension of our being, and the temporal dimension of body and changing experiences is another. And part of who we are, if we begin to awaken, is to discover that both of these realities are true. Um, plus which, as somebody said, the 60s were a really good decade, and so might as well do them over again, right? <laughs> and on Saturday, there was Spirit Rock did this um, benefit day for the scholarship fund, which was quite beautiful and raised um, 30-some thousand dollars for our scholarship fund. I was really happy about that. And it was a very sweet day, and I thought, I thought it was actually going to be more difficult because I had to sit up on this little stage out there with a lot of people and have an entire day of people talking about things I'd done and a lot of attention. I thought, oh, I'm going to be self-conscious and, you know. <sighs> um, and I talked to Ajahn Sumedho, my, my friend, the abbot, who was here recently visiting teacher. And he reminded me a story when he was at the funeral of our teacher, Ajahn Chah, and hundreds of thousands of people had come for that ceremony. And Sumedho was one of the next in line as an elder at the monastery, as a Westerner and as a Western teacher. And he was interviewed by the tele- national television of Thailand and with some other people. And then all of a sudden he said, I was left there. And there I was on this stage, and there was this sea of thousands of people. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, here I am. Um, And then he said, I looked out and I saw so much goodwill and so much devotion and so much appreciation for Dharma and for what our teacher had done and so forth. He said, I just relaxed. And I said, this is really beautiful. You might as well enjoy it. Get with the program. So it was a kind of a beautiful hint, actually, to hear that from him. And um, the day was, was lovely out in the meadow. And... Um, Jai Uthal came and chanted, and um, James Barris and Wes Nisker came and did music and songs. And my teaching partners from now for 30 more years, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, came and told stories and did a bit of teaching. Joseph told a story, you know, people were sort of telling, as they do, it's sort of roasts and toasts and things. Um, back at our center in Massachusetts in the mid-70s, we were, as we had, we were beginning the three-month retreat where people, 100 people at a time, will come and sit in meditation for three months. And we had some psychologist friends from Harvard come out 
who wanted to do research and see what happened to people when they sat for three months studying concentration and attention. And they were actually quite amazed because they brought different kinds of uh, um, measuring devices and so forth and, and found that people after three months were able to be aware in ways that they'd never measured before. You know, for example, just, just the simplest things of seeing how brief a flash of light could you see or what's the, what's the, most, the shortest sound you could distinguish or how, could you, you know, how quickly could you notice some experience within your body. Um, and it turned out to be 10, 20, 50 times more refined attention from the people they were measuring than any baseline they'd ever taken before. They were kind of scratching their heads saying, this is really unusual. And then they gave a bunch of the usual psychological tests, the TAT and the Rorschach and things like that. And Joseph said, and then they decided just as a kind of a um, comparison to study the teachers. So they hooked us up to the different machines and then they gave us the TAT and the Rorschach. And he said, you know, so there was Jack. I had forgotten this. There was Jack taking the Rorschach. And, you know, it's those ten cards with those images. Everybody's seen them. And um, usually people will look at them and turn them and see, you know, six, eight, or ten, fifteen different images. And they gave me the card. And I started to look at it and just reassociate as one does. And I was talking and talking and talking because I talk for a living, right? <laughs> and after I had talked about the hundredth image that I'd seen in it, they said, you know, we really have to get on to the next card. <laughs> so he asked the psychologist um, what this represented, and the only thing the guy could say was abnormal. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say what kind of abnormal that was like that poem from Zen Master Ryokan where he wrote, Spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddha shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) It's a wonderful poem. And... As various people taught, ne- t- talked and taught, Nina Wise did a kind of theater improvisation that was really beautiful and brilliant. And Naomi Newman from Traveling Jewish Theater got up and did a piece on aging, and she became this old woman. She said, and you don't want to look at me, she said, because, because I got one foot in the grave. <laughs> and what you don't want to see is I'm bending back to the earth. And that's where you're headed, too. You don't want to see it. And she did this whole fantastic thing on aging. Um, And it was very, it was just a playful and beautiful day. And as I sat there, I kind of reflected on how mysterious it is the way our life unfolds. Because I don't know if it's so for you, but I suspect so. It is not at all how you imagine Not at all. You have all these ideas about how your life is going to unfold, and then it does something all mysterious by itself. And it does it, and then it disappears. As the Buddhist teachings say, like a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. It appears in ways that are really unexpected. Things take amazing turns, and then it vanishes, and then you go around the corner in the canyon, and some whole new thing happens. And I began to appreciate, just kind of reflecting in the day, 
this kind of mystery. Um, if uh, I hadn't taken a course with Dr. Wingsit Chan, who was a great Chinese scholar from Harvard who was coming at, to, to start the department at Dartmouth College the year in 1963, and who sat cross-legged on the desk, this wonderful old man, and talked about Lao Tzu and Buddha. If I hadn't taken that the same semester that I was taking organic chemistry, preparation for medical school, and had the contrast between the two, and said, oh, this is really cool. I think I like this better than organic chemistry. And it's nothing against organic chemistry, mind you. But anyway, um, I probably wouldn't have majored in Asian studies in Buddhism, but it was so wonderful what he was teaching, and it was so relevant to my own life, to hear words that weren't just philosophy, but how can one live in a wise way? That wasn't a part of my you know, ordinary education. Um, if I hadn't um, then asked the Peace Corps to send me to a Buddhist country, and they ended up sending me to this remote place in Thailand on the Mekong River Valley on the border of Laos, and it happened that a couple months after I got there, someone, as I t- said last week, came running into the medical team's office there where I was working and said, there's a, a Western monk on this mountaintop in this province. You have to go see him. They knew I was interested in Buddhism. So I met Sumedho, and he introduced me to um, Ajahn Chah as a teacher. Completely mysterious. Um, Sometimes I go about pitying myself, say the Ojibwe Indians, when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And Joseph, Sharon, my teaching partners, Joseph, who was also in the Peace Corps in Thailand, after he finished Columbia University, he went in the Peace Corps and then went to India and found a Buddhist teacher. He too was interested. Um, he came back to this country in 1974, just when we when um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Ram Das were starting Naropa, the first big Buddhist university. It was kind of like the Buddhist Woodstock in, in that year. Thousands of people came. Um, and I knew Chogyam Trungpa. I'd met him at a cocktail party in Cambridge, actually, at the, <laughs> head, of the head of the Department of Psychology at Harvard who, was, who had hired Ram Das and then fired Ram Das sometime later. Uh, David McClellan, but was hosting all these interesting characters from Tibet and various people would come. And we, Trumpa and I had a talk, a couple of different conversations that began that led to my becoming part of the founding of Naropa Buddhist University. And so I was on my way to teach there. And Joseph had come back and didn't know what to do. He was wandering around. He'd come out to California to see some friends. And he said, I was in Berkeley trying to think of what I was going to do with myself. And I had to go to the bathroom. And so I, you know, they stopped the car. I saw a restaurant, and I went in, they, and they told me, you can't use the restroom unless you have lunch here. It's Berkeley, after all, you know. So I got in the car, and I went in a second restaurant, and they wouldn't let me use the restroom either. And finally, I was kind of getting desperate, and I went down the block to this third restaurant and walked in, and there was Ramdas sitting there, who I'd known from India. And Ramdas said, oh, Joseph, I was thinking of you. Would you come and teach meditation for my class of 2,000 students at Naropa Institute. I need a meditation teacher. And Joseph agreed, Joseph and Sharon together. And so if Joseph hadn't met Ramdas in the quest of a restroom in Berkeley, we wouldn't have, Spirit Rock wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have started teaching together. It wouldn't have happened. 
And even, you know, after a couple of years of teaching retreats, when we started looking for our place in Massachusetts, we decided it would be good to have a steady place for people to practice. And um, as I said on Saturday, it was 1974, 75, um, the oil crisis. So the price of oil had gone sky high and there were all these huge old Catholic monasteries that they couldn't afford to heat anymore. And the, as the oil prices went up, also the, 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 it crossed the curve of the postulants for Catholic priests and there were fewer and fewer. <laughs> this monastery had 100 rooms, a bowling alley, tennis courts, 80 acres of land, and, and nine monks in it. And they didn't know what to do with it, so they sold it to us for $150,000. Um, and when they found out we were going to make a meditation center out of it, they left the furniture and all the things in the kitchen. You know, you here, use this. But we didn't have, we were hippies. We didn't have $150,000. We scraped together a bit, like 30000 and then we didn't know what we were going to do. And then this woman came in to see Joseph in an interview and said that her um, mother had, um, died recently and she'd received uh, an inheritance of $15,000 and she didn't know what to do with it. And Joseph said, well, we're trying to buy this meditation center and she just signed the check and said, here you are. So, But we still needed another $100,000 and we went to the bank and went in and the bank listened to us and they said, sure, how much money do you want? <laughs> this was peculiar, you know, as we, we did dress up, but still. And it... <laughs> It turned out that Insight Meditation Society, IMS, had the same initials as the International Meditation Society of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So they thought they were lending money, you know, to the Beatles or something like that, right? And so it went. I mean, we look for places out in California to make a center for, for years. We looked at a hundred different places when we decided to do it, James Barras and Anna and Sylvia and so forth. And, and it wasn't until my wife and I decided to move to Woodacre. We'd already looked at places in the Russian River and Los Gatos and all these places and hadn't found the right place. And we were already moving to Woodacre here. And then somebody says, oh, there's some land across the street you might be interested in. Um, of all the places in the, in the Bay Area or in Northern California, here we are in Woodacre, and someone says, well, yeah, there's this sacred valley called Spirit Rock. Maybe you should take a look at it. The Nature Conservancy wants to sell it. And um, this land, as many of you may know, we bought it for a million dollars, a little bit less than that. And the Nature Conservancy used all that money to buy rainforest land. So when we got the land for Spirit Rock, they had enough money to buy tens of thousands of acres of rainforest in the Amazon as well. So you're sitting here um, with the grace of also this huge parcel of rainforest land that's now in conservancy. So, you know, you think you know what's going to happen, and then other things happen. And yes, there are mysteries and in, in Buddhist teachings, our teacher Deepama, this wonderful grandmother and sage in India, her, her meditation master, who was Joseph's teacher, Munindra, um, after she did all the trainings of wisdom and insight, decided to train her in, in the kind of classic psychic powers. And so Deepama, who was a fantastic yogi, was as Manindra told us the story, was able to do things with the elements. For example, she could take a potato, put it in her hand, do the fire element, and then just cook it like a microwave and hand it to you, and it was steaming, and there it was ready to eat. 
Or she could, Menendra said, when he trained her in these other ways, she would appear out of thin air, she would vanish wherever she was and appear for her meditation teachings and then disappear. And he said, I wanted to know, we were in Burma at that time, what Utant had to say at the UN. He was the head of the United Nations at that time. So I asked Deepama to go and listen to one of his talks and, you know, she went to the UN, appeared, listened and came back and, and sort of reported the teachings. Um, I really regret that I never got to ask her to do one of those things. I was dying to see this. But she said, oh, you have to ask my teacher Menindra if it's all right, and it never happened. I wanted to see the potato bake, basically. (laughs) But in fact, it says in the Buddhist teachings that those kind of miracles are small potatoes. Sorry about that. (laughs) That the miracle is the fact that we are incarnated in this strange body with wiggly things at the end and a little bit of fur here and you know how I like to talk about it. A hole at the end in which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up and glug, 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 you know, and move around in these funny ways. I mean, this is bizarre. This is much more miraculous than anything you can do with a potato. So Thomas Merton, who writes in Louisville, because his monastery Gethsemane was there in Kentucky, in Louisville at the corner of Fall, Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping vis- district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people and that they were mine and I theirs and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from the dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy that I laughed out loud on the street like a madman. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine spark has become incarnate. There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. And so, yes, there are, you know, the special kind of miracles, but then there's the amazing miracle of just being alive. And in it, who knows, you know, we have these difficulties and we have these pleasures that come. And people, I remember my teacher Ajahn Chah asking us, he would appear and he'd say, all right, tell me, if you look back, where have you learned the greatest wisdom, the greatest understanding, the greatest compassion? Has it been through the easy parts or the hard parts? And think about it, he would say. And of course, we would all, to some chagrin, say, oh, damn, you know, (laughs) it was the hard parts. (laughs) Um, This is Nelson Mandela, and you think of him, 27 years in prison, mostly in Robben Island. Who could imagine, you know, anything good coming of that? And yet he walks out, he walked out with the graciousness and dignity and wisdom and illumination that's touched almost everybody who's heard of him on earth. So he, this is a letter he wrote to Winnie, his, his wife, um, who was about to serve jail time. For those of you getting ready to go on retreat, this will be helpful. <laughs> Dear dear Winnie, you may find that the cell is an ideal place to get to know yourself. (laughs) 
to search realistically and regularly the process of your own mind and feelings. In judging our progress as individuals, we tend to focus on external factors such as one's social position, influence, popularity, wealth, and standard of education. But the inner qualities may be even more crucial in assessing our development as a human being. Honesty, sincerity, simplicity, purity, humility, generosity, absence of vanity. Readiness to serve your fellow humans. Qualities within the reach of every single soul, every being. These are the foundations of a genuine spiritual life. At least, if for nothing else, the cell gives you the opportunity to look daily into your conduct to overcome what is difficult and develop what is beautiful in you. Regular meditation each day, I think you will find, will particularly be fruitful in this regard. Thank you, Nelson. So it is so mysterious how this unfolds. And what matters more than anything is what we make of it. Because in a moment you can get the phone call that, you know, the beloved person you're living with, the doctor calls and says, well, your, their tests have come back, and, or maybe it's your tests. You know, and all of a sudden your whole world is turned upside down and we know it happens. And what is... What do we do with this? What is the purpose? It's, it's not just to, you know, have pleasure and avoid pain. Anybody succeed? Well, raise your hand. I want to meet that person. I mean, praise and blame and gain and loss and joy and sorrow are the measure of humanity. There wouldn't be a good plot without it. I mean, you wouldn't go to a movie where everyone was smiling the entire movie. It's not a very interesting plot. Um, my friend Ajahn Sumedho, let me see if I can find this. He was teaching the folks in his monastery. And he said, don't expect perfection to, or, or, or want it to be an aim in itself when you come to a spiritual community or a monastery or for a particular social situation or organization or society. All these are just an outer form, a conventional form. As everything else, it's unsatisfactory if you expect full satisfaction from it. Just get that. As every form, it will be unsatisfactory if you expect full satisfaction from it. We all have our ideas about how this monastery, how a perfect monastery should be how the other monks and nuns and how the lay people and visitors should act and be. I certainly have my ideals about how you should be. And then he specified with a smile on his face, monks and nuns should be content, grateful, kind, never cause any trouble for me as abbot so that I experience unpleasant feelings. You should be the perfect monks and nuns. But it's not our task to create the ideal monastery. It's our task to see how it is and learn from it, to learn graciousness, compassion, patience, understanding, honesty, freedom. And in this we have everything we need for this, a roof over our head that protects us from heat and cold, clothing, medicine, food, and people around us who are interested in the cultivation of the heart as we are. Conditions are plenty good enough.
And I feel such a gratitude for the teachings of the Dharma when I look back at my life. And really, perhaps as you do, all of you who are here, whether it's the first time or you've been coming to Spirit Rock for a long time, um, we know that the materialistic world that we inhabit and the materialistic society is a limited view of life. The majority of Americans, it said in one psychological study, have had a mystical experience, and most of them reported they wouldn't want to have it again (laughs) because it was too unfamiliar and unsettling. And one of the gorgeous, beautiful things about encountering the Dharma in whatever form it is. I mean, here at Spirit Rock, it's a certain form, but there's so many good forms of genuine spiritual teaching, is that it offers us a a language and a support for that knowing of the heart in us that there's so much bigger game happening than just getting through our work or our list of things to do or our or physical accomplishments or a making of money, that there's some way of stepping out of the small sense of self, the dream, the illusion of separateness, and touching that which is sacred and holy and mysterious, that nourishes the heart and that gives meaning to this life. And that the teachings also offer us a a deep, and an immediate reminder that we can be free no matter what the circumstances. If Nelson Mandela can do it 27 years in prison, whatever your circumstances, that freedom of heart is possible for you where you are. Somebody said to a Zen master, Master, how can I be liberated? And the master threw up his hands and said, Whoever has put you in bondage. And I remember sitting with my guru Nisargadat, this wonderful Indian master in Bombay. And somebody said, How is it that you are so free that your realization came to you? And he said, My teacher told me I was free, and I believed him. (laughs) Oh, so simple. And it's funny, you know, because in the Buddhist tradition, this kind of paradox that we talked about, you know, the paradox of looking in the mirror and one sense seeing the body, you have a particular body, you have a body of a particular ethnic group, or you have the body of a particular age or decade, you know, your 20s or your 60s or whatever and so forth. And then this other amazing dimension of consciousness itself that witnesses the whole game and says, wow, this is pretty interesting, isn't it? Look what's happening. Now I'm having a hard time and now he's having a good time, you know, and going through the plot, through the movie. Um, Sometimes in the Buddhist tradition, the awakening is said to be immediate, that there's a, a moment, and we all know it, where we're lost in our life and then like the little bubble gets popped and all of a sudden, oh, Here we are, this is so mysterious, and everything relaxes and you become the place of witnessing, the perspective, the heart opens, 
um, there's a kind of graciousness and you say, I was so caught in all that and it's just fine. It's just going to be okay. And in that moment you can let go and forgive and, and be at ease and there's a deep sense of well-being and freedom and we all know this. O nobly born, the Buddhist text says, remember who you really are. Remember this freedom of your own Buddha nature. But then it also says, um, I think Zen master Suzuki Roshi, who said to his students, you're perfect the way you are, you know, or I love you just the way you are, and I also love you too much to let you stay this way, or something like that. Um, that just as we can awaken, it's not a game of self-perfection. Oh, I'm going to become a better person. But really it's a game of the perfection of love and understanding of what is here. This ripens, the heart ripens in kindness and presence and compassion and letting go like a garden. And I feel so grateful in my own, when I sort of reflect back, because as I've written about, my journey hasn't been this kind of, you know, higher and higher and get more expansive, like up the chakras or things. Mine's been kind of the other way around. I started with my mind, oh, reading the Buddhist texts and getting these great teachings and even having visions and insights. So this is really cool. Um, and then I realized that um, I was, um, uh, later on, I discovered that I was emotionally... Um, I know it's not a politically correct term anymore, but emotionally retarded would probably be the (laughs) most accurate. That even though I had a lot of good ideas about spiritual life, um, how to actually embody them and love somebody, you know. It's, It's easy to love thousands of people in your meditation, right? But then when you're actually living with one, (laughs) or two or three, it becomes the more advanced curriculum. And so from the head, it goes down to the heart. And what does it mean to, to be gracious, to forgive, to let go, to open? And then, of course, at least for me, it's down even further, kind of moving down into the body, a kind of embodied spirituality, this human form, this earth, the fact that we live in this incarnation. What does it mean to bring the spirit of awakening to this precious earth on which we were born. And I think of the monks who go out now and wrap their robes around the ancient teak trees in the forest to protect them from being uh, cut down any further. The, the, um, The logging of the great forests of Southeast Asia has taken away where the monks and and nuns and and where the wild animals used to live. And the monks who used to sit in meditation are now out, many of them, um, using their robes and their practice and their heart to say, we're brothers and sisters with the trees and the creatures of the forest. It was such a blessing in those years to go to be in an indigenous culture, to live in the villages in Asia which... At that time, there was no electricity and no running water, and it was really very, very simple life in in the border of Laos. Um, And to live in a way with people where there was a sense of community that I could only have longed for or imagined. And I love this story. Let's see if I can find it in here. 
from Robert Johnson, this Jungian analyst, um, because he talks about his first trip to India. He tells a story about going to India, and he said, I was warned about the chaos and the poverty I would encounter and the dirt. Um, and there is poverty, but also there's incredible wealth in India. It's this, all these contrasts. He said, but no one prepared me for the immense and deep happiness of almost everyone in India. And he described how in India, one's sense of reality is expanded to include more of life, the suffering and the sublime. And for along with encountering the difficulties, he was embraced as one is by this tremendous kind of connection with community and families. Um, he said, if you want to make friends with an Indian, you just edge up beside him. This is always done with someone of your own gender. You never do it cross-gender. You just do that and you wait. And if he consents to friendship somehow, he won't go anywhere and just stand there. And after what seems like a terribly long period of time, somebody says something or somebody does something, and then you are probably friends for as long as the two of you wish, maybe for life. And in this way in India, I ended up with friends amazingly quickly. And then I got sick. It was in a rural Indian hospital, a nightmare They explained to me that it was a truly modern hospital. They had one thermometer, which all of us patients had in succession, one after another. I objected, and they said, it's all right, we rinse it under the tap. (laughs) Somehow we survived. But the point of the story is that one Indian friend who had taken me on as a brother, for what reason I never know, it's futile to ask, came and slept under my bed at night. He said, I'm not going to have you there alone. So he or somebody assigned by him slept under my hospital bed every night. Now, if I go to the hospital in America, I can't get anybody to sleep under my bed. It's just not possible. And one day, when my fever was 104 and I was slightly out of my head, Amba Shankar, that was his name, stood at the foot of my bed and told me the story of Baba. Baba had a friend, and the friend was very ill. It looked as if Baba's friend might die. So Baba came to him and said, I wish to die for you, and you have only to say the word, and I will go and die so that you may live. This is my wish. This is my friendship. This is how it is. The friend agreed, so Baba went away and died, and his friend lived. Being told this story, which is something like out of the Arabian Nights, snapped me into focus, because then Amma Shankar said, You say the word, and I will go and die, and then you will be all right. And I was speechless. I don't understand things like this. So I managed to say, Amba, I don't think I am that ill yet. Don't do anything rash now, please. I think we will both pull through. And as it happened, we did. But the man had offered me the most precious gift of all his life. And I learned in India, as I did in Thailand, a whole other way of being. Who would have known? It happens, you know. We end up in various places, and there's such grace in it. There was such grace in meeting my teachers, the unexpected grace. I talked last week about Ajahn Chah, and he was like a big tree, you know, with seeds and fruit and nourishing, and out of his graciousness and his wisdom and compassion. There grew 200 monasteries of his now around the world. And he was so simple. He would look at us and he'd say, water flows downhill, right? Everyone would nod. He'd say, 
would you like it to flow uphill? I would say no. He said, but you do it all the time. You look at the world and it's flowing in a certain direction and you say, no, I don't want it to flow in this direction. I want it to go in that direction, don't you? And you just kind of hear it. He'd say, why not get with the program? (laughs) Things are not the way you expect them to be. See things as they are and let your heart be at peace. Let yourself be free. And he didn't mean see them and ignore the injustice and ignore the racism and ignore the, the terrible things that people do to one another. That, he said, you can attend to. That can be changed. But to see the way the world is, is the first step. And in the midst of it, there was such joy and humor and humility and, and ease. I mean, I think of him and I think of my teacher, Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, wandering around. For 15 years, he walked on foot through the war zones trying to make peace in Cambodia. Um, this Dhammayatra, this, and he would have hundreds of people walk behind him. And one day he was walking along, ringing this bell, and there soldiers would come out from both sides. The Khmer Rouge and the royal soldiers would come out, and they would lay their guns down on the ground and bow as the parade went by. Mostly, a few times, hand grenades were thrown, and people were shot, but they just kept going anyway, even though people died. And one day there was a soldier who said, Oh, that bell is so beautiful to, to the Ajahn, to the teacher. And, and Gosananda said, oh, can I give it to you? Um, and um, he looked at him, he said, how about if I give you my bell in exchange for your gun? Uh-huh. And the soldier said, oh, I can't do that. And then it was either Gosananda or one of the monks who was following him said, well, how about if I give you this bell in exchange for the bullets in your gun. No one will know. And the man emptied out all the cartridges in his gun and offered it and in exchange got this beautiful bell. And the kind of courage of just staying with what one knows in one's heart is true is really living a life of dharma. Because circumstances are going to change all the time. And that's not in our control. We don't get to choose the plot very much. I mean, a few small things you do, it's so. But the big ones, like who you marry, you think you choose that? I mean, how did you run into that person? And how it all it's so mysterious? Or who your partner is? Or you know, who you fall in love with? For better and for worse, as they say. Um, And to me, it was such a blessing to hear the teachings of Dharma, the the Tao, the law, the way things are. When Ajahn Chah said, there is suffering in this world, the first noble truth. My ears kind of, oh, somebody's just telling it like it is. There is suffering. And there's a cause to it. Greed, hatred, delusion, all the kinds of holding on that creates war and, and injustice and racism and all the, you know, tremendous conflict in the world and there is a release there is freedom there is awakening there is a liberation of the heart and he would look at us and say this from that deep knowing that you too can be free and I mean I wanted to jump up and down and write everybody I knew I was writing letters you have to read the Dharma you know and it wasn't very complicated it's like Lama Yeshe 
who said, to become your own psychologist, you don't have to learn some big Buddhist philosophy. All you have to do is examine your mind and heart. You already examine material things every day. Every morning you check out the food in your refrigerator, but you never look into your own mind. Checking out your mind seems much more important. (laughs) So this was really the level of the Dharma teaching. It was so straightforward and simple. Integrity, generosity. Say, do you know a truly generous person who isn't happy? Happiness comes from service, from joy, from giving. Happiness comes from integrity. We would be sitting in meditation. It's really hard to sit in meditation after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well. You know, if you want to quiet your mind and open your heart, you have to somehow live with a certain degree of integrity. And so these would be the basic fundamental teachings that it's possible to be free and that we can relax into the wisdom of our heart that each of us when we get quiet knows the, the phrase that Ajahn Chah used was the one who knows in us and from all the different retreats that I did you know I would sit like anybody else when I sat I was restless and sleepy and wild monkey mind and fear and, you know, every kind of mood and all the unfinished business. You sit down quietly and you think, okay, now I'm going to have a nice meditation. And whatever is unfinished in you shows itself and says, here I am, the unwept tears, the ocean of tears it's called, you know, or the beautiful things, the creativity and longing to express your love. And I sat with all of that and I would sit out in the forest in the charnel grounds in the monastic training and the bodies would be brought to to burn at night and so forth. And in it, there was a reminder of this mystery in which we live, of this greater reality than our small story. And somehow through it, I learned that that I, that, that I could be with this world, with its joys and sorrows, in a way that I never imagined. And that the great heart of a Buddha, the great heart of compassion and understanding, is not some ideal, but it's to be discovered in yourself, in each one of us. It's not far away. Um, it is really the invitation of the teachings. Remember sitting over the years with so many people as they were dying, um, you know, and going through their pain, and because I'd sat with so much pain, and I'd sat with so many bodies and so forth, and this one beautiful man who was dying in the AIDS epidemic in those years, there were so many friends who died. He was lying there, and his body got bloated. He went from 120 pounds to about 250 pounds, and he said, my, my body is rotting underneath me. And then he looked and smiled. He said, but I know that this isn't who I really am. And I just would chant with him and sit and look him in the eyes. And um, I felt so grateful for the teachings that remind us generation after generation of who we really are. And sometimes you can do it alone, and sometimes you need another person with you. Um, 
eyewitness accounts of the Bolshevik Revolution, where they began to round up white Russians at night, one by one, take them out and shoot them. Um, And just uh, before blindfolding this one man, since there was no one else to say goodbye to, he asked if he could embrace and kiss his executioners. We have such a deep need to be connected to one another. And part of the gift of being connected to one another is that we can remind one another of who we really are, of this secret beauty of the heart, as Thomas Merton says. I remember asking Ramdas in the early years um, when I was working as a therapist, and I've told this story a lot of times, but I love it, um, working as a psychologist, I said, do you ever still see people as a psychologist? And he said, yes, I do. I said, oh, this is great. I'll, you know, let me find out how Ramdas works. You know, I said, so how do you do it? And he said, well, I work in a kind of unusual way. He said, I said, how so? He said, well, I don't see people so often. I tend to see people maybe once a year. <laughs> said, well, what do you do then you know, when you do see them? He said, well, I have them lie down in front of me. I'll sit next to them, maybe lie on a bed. And I put my hand on their heart, and I look in their eyes for two or three hours. And then if there's anything to say, we say it. (laughs) And I thought about it in coming back from the monastery, because there was a lot of stuff uncooked in me, a lot of difficult stuff from my childhood that, you know, was didn't come up in the monastery and things in relationship. You know how it is. Um, It's only when you get into the circumstance that all the conditioning shows itself. And like Ramdas, I had just these wonderful people to work with, the Buddhist teachers I work with. I work with this woman, Dora Kalf, who's a Jungian analyst and the first child analyst in the Jungian tradition. She developed sand play therapy, little sandboxes and figures that... My wife studied with her for a long time, and I went to see Dora, and she was this old wise woman. And I came into her room with 10,000 figures in these little sand trays, and the Dalai Lama had been there before me, and all these Tibetan lamas she was friends with had come in, I think because she was a lama, actually. And she looked at me, and I said, well, so what do I do? And she smiled, and she said, anything you want. And I just began, because you, you can't really think your way through it, to take these figures and make scenes over the course of weeks. And they were scenes of my childhood and scenes of my family and then scenes of very deep kind of archetypal, all kinds of mythological things. Stuff came out of me I had no idea. And she just sat there. She said, the work for me is to make a place that is free and loving and protected so that that which needs to blossom in a human being can come out. And that's really what I see in meditation. And I, I've seen it also in the years of work that I've been with um, Hamid Ali, the developer of Diamond Heart Work, I've also worked with for years. And it's just this gracious space. And somehow I, I find it in teaching. You know, teaching in a certain way seems like, okay, here you are, you're up here in this role. And I thought it was going to be very difficult um, to sit on that stage all day Saturday with all this kind of birthday hoopla and stuff like that. Um, 
And there's this practice that I do sometimes. If I'm coming to give a talk here and I feel nervous, like, you know, I don't really know what I'm saying, which is often true, or, you know, I feel this nervousness. And then I, I pause, I kind of feel the suffering of it, and I realize, oh, this is because um, I'm worried how I'm going to look, right? How is it going to work? Will it be, a, you know, received well, or whatever kind of fantasies I want, um, you know, to be, be liked or respected or something. And it's all about you-know-who, moi, as Miss Piggy would say, right? And then I think, I say, you know, my job isn't to teach Jack. <laughs> it's to teach the Dharma. And the minute I remember that, I realize, oh, okay, it's not about me at all. It's really about the Dharma. And then I relax. Because there's no other way that it could work. I mean, there we were up on the stage, Joseph and Sharon and I, and when we first started teaching, Sharon was 21 years old. I was 28 and Joseph was 29, and we had these retreats with hundreds of people and so forth. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) Some kind of mistake, you know, Um, or whatever was supposed to happen. But it clearly wasn't personal. It was that we had received such beautiful reminders of who we are, such compassion, such blessings, such straightforward wisdom from our teachers, that wherever you are, the heart can be free. That this heart of a Buddha of compassion is not something in India 2,500 years ago, but it is your own true nature. And you can trust it and work with it and open it. Um, that we'd received something so beautiful that um, somehow, you know, it's like contagious. We've gotten the, gotten the disease and then we passed it on, you know. Other people caught it from us. Um, and here I am now, you know, 21 years of Monday nights and thousands of interviews. And it really is a practice. Because sometimes I'll be grouchy, you know, and my family, my mother's going through something or my wife's family or or I just get home, you know, and I've been teaching a lot and, and I'm tired and, you know, and then I get, get in the house and my wife and my daughter, they're not interested in having a Buddhist teacher come through the door, I'll tell you that, you know. <laughs> Who's going to cook dinner and take out the garbage and things like that, you know. Or, or we'll have some kind of little marital spat and then I have to come over and sit up here and say, now, you know, love everyone, and it's all so gracious. Meanwhile, I'm thinking about what my wife said and, you know, how I'm going to answer when I go back home, you know. Or, or I write this beautiful book, Path with Heart, and I was pleased with how it came out. And then Bantam Books calls me sometime later, and they said, we've decided to make a tape of this to put it out. And so they, rec- they got somebody to record it, and they sent me the tape, and they'd you know, printed 25,000 copies of it or something like that. And they have this thing, um, because they were afraid that the, there was too much material in the book, uh, of time compression. So you listen to the tape and it was done more quickly like this because they, they had a computer program to make the spaces between the words. So it says, all right, now sit down and close your eyes and begin to meditate and relax and let your shoulders drop and take it easy. And so forth. And I'm thinking, wait a second, this is New York, but um, the meditation doesn't work this way, you know. And I, 25,000 of these are going out there, please, you know. And then I have to come and I say, it's okay, relax, you know. But inside I'm thinking, I've got to call Bantam Books and I'm so... 
And so all these things happen. And what happens underneath it somehow is that I get touched by the purity and the sincerity and the genuineness of the people who come to sit, of you, of the people on retreats and the people in classes. Um, Because there's such beauty in your hearts and in your eyes. And there's such sincerity. Um, And it's such a privilege, actually. I go on these retreats and, as I said on Saturday, people come in and they're stressed and they did everything they could to get a week or ten days off on retreat. And as the days go by, the lines in their face soften. And by the end of the retreat, people look younger and their bodies are more lithe and there's a sense of spaciousness. And somebody gave me these haiku that people were writing on retreats because... There you are. You come even for a day here in meditation. You go out to walk. And after a few hours, you're out just doing your walking meditation. And all of a sudden, you feel like a two-year-old again. And you're, you step on the grass and you could almost dance. Oh, lizard, how still you sit, basking in the hot, hot sun. How come my body is so restless? <laughs> or in the dining hall, lessons in impermanence. Plate full, then empty. (laughs) Or, writing a haiku requires counting syllables. Only five more to go. (laughs) (laughs) Or, slender white iris, fiercely alone and strong, really not fragile. Or, in the urinal, the men sigh and belch and fart. No women in here. (laughs) Oh, and so they made this beautiful book for me um, of people's stories from retreats and things like that that I was given, you know. and there's such moving stories, this woman who came shortly after her daughter died on a retreat and how she felt like she would never, never be able to live or breathe again and how we sat together with the ocean of tears. And she said, it felt like the first place that I was allowed to cry as long and deep and as much as I needed to. And something changed from that. You know, or, or it's this story of a, at the end of one of our two-month retreats, this really wonderful story, um, there was a, the last week of the two-month retreat, we start speaking and kind of integrating the practice. And so there was a question period one morning, and somebody raised their hands and said, um, can I talk about something that's happened during this retreat? I said, sure. And he said, well, um, I went up in the hills where I love to sit, and I made a little stone altar for myself. He said, and uh, the day before yesterday when I went up there, it was all torn apart, and it wasn't an animal that had done it. I could tell somebody had done that. And so that was his question. So I just sat with that for a minute. Okay. And then another hand went up, and somebody said, I was walking in the hills... And I saw this little altar, and I love the natural world, and we've built enough on this earth. And I said, we don't want to ruin it, and I took it down. (laughs) 
<laughs> but then I came back down and I was sitting in meditation and I felt really guilty because I thought that that person who built it, it must have been really precious to them. So I went way back up in the hill and I built it again and I improved on it. <laughs> so I'm just sitting here and listening. And then a third person raises their hand and she says, and this is, uh, I knew about her history and what had happened to her own home and things like that. And she said, and I was hiking in the hills and I saw this altar yesterday and I hate developers. Something had happened. She had a whole story and reason. She said, and I couldn't stand what we humans are doing to the beauty of this earth and I took it down. And she was still angry. So there we are. She's glowering and angry. Here's the guy who built it and took it down and built it up again and the person, you know, and looking at each other. So, so what to say? So I, I sat for a minute and then I remembered. I said, and, you know, in the course of these years of our teaching together in our teaching collective at, in Massachusetts and here at Spirit Rock, we've had a lot of differences among ourselves as teachers. It hasn't all been harmonious. And one of the big differences is this spectrum of the people who want to keep it just the way we learned it in Asia, with the chanting the same and the instructions the same and everything, and really the, and the sutras and the texts, and conserve it because they're afraid that the speed things are changing, that the Dharma is just going to get lost if we don't really stick to the roots. And then there are the people that want to adapt it and say, but we have a different language and a different way of teaching and culture. Let's experiment. Let's explore. How do we do it in prisons? How do we do it with, with, um, with children? How do we make it more alive in our bodies and so forth? And there's a lot of tension between them. And at one of our teacher meetings after maybe five, ten years of teaching, 20 years ago, we were in such struggle around this that we got our... Dharma psychiatrist Robert Hall to come in and help us. And there we were, really, um, people were kind of ready to split and divide and make, you know, make my own meditation center, that kind of thing, take my marbles and go home. And, um, and Robert did a really brilliant and beautiful thing. After all the argument, he said, let's hear the conflict. You know, let's not run away from it. This is like Ajahn Chah. He was interested in the conflict. All right, let's see it. Let's see the truth of this. So all the conflict's out on the table. And then Robert said, all right, I'd like you, the person who's the most conservative, traditional, rigid. No, he didn't say that. But anyway, <laughs> I would like you to leave the room and just, just go out for 15 minutes or half an hour. And we sat together and he said, all right, if this person who wants us to read the original Sanskrit and Pali texts and very insistent on the, the things not be changed and so forth, if they were not here any longer, how would it affect the rest of you? And when we sat with it, people began to reflect honestly and say, you know, if he wasn't here, I would teach the sutras more and I would have more... Um, uh, teaching an emphasis on the tradition, but because he does that, I'm able to do this other part. So then he was invited in a room, and then the kind of the maverick, the one who wanted to change everything and who people were fighting with, she was sent out of the room. Okay. And again, Robert had a sit and said, all right, if this person who's finding all these creative ways to adapt, if you get rid of her, she's so much trouble and she's always pushing you and trying to get things to change. If you don't have to bother with this difficult woman anymore, right, how would you be? 
and we sat for a while. And it was really clear that various people raised their hand. I would be doing more innovation. I would have to figure out how to do the prison work or the work in this way in this community or that because we need to do it. And she was brought back in. And it became so clear that the Dharma isn't carried by one person or one point of view, but that this mystery of awakening is held by all of us together. That the Sangha is the Dharma, that it is the same and not separate. And I'm here because of you, and you're here because of me, and we can't tease those apart. And this beautiful book is full of all these stories, but since it's getting to the end, I'll read you only one more, and then we'll do... This is... um, My daughter helped collect these stories. So this is from my mom. What can I say? He's been an interesting son. He's never given me any problem. Well, except, you know, in high school and college and, you know, some of those things and getting in jail and driving cars and other wild things. But other than that, he opened up interesting aspects and ways of thinking that I would never have known. When he started up with Buddhism, I went to the library to look up meditation because I didn't know what it was, but there were almost no books about it. So I found this place near where we lived in Washington where Buddhist monks from Sri Lanka and Burma were and started to read about it. And later I went up to the meditation center in Barrie. And I'd never been to anything like that before. But yeah, basically, I really think he's been a really good son and I'm really happy with my relationship with him and with all my sons. People think that because he was a monk or a teacher, things were really different, but it wasn't. It was just a mother and her son. So it is so mysterious. And if you're in difficulty now, I can just say one thing to you. It will change. might get worse. might get better. (laughs) But it's going to change. And which one do you learn more from? Where does the heart really grow? In compassion and understanding and wisdom. I mean, in Tibet, people pray for enough suffering to, to really discover the great heart of compassion. And what more beautiful thing to do with this mysterious life than to learn to love and to learn to be free. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.